Section 23 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 Rome and the Temporal Power by Richard Garnett, Part 1. We are to describe the consolidation at the end of the fifteenth and beginning of the sixteenth century of the temporal power of the popes which had existed amid the greatest vicissitudes since the alliance of the papacy with the frankish kings in the eighth but had hitherto been rather a source of humiliation than of strength to the holy see it must be shown how this transformation of a feeble and distracted state into one firmly organized and fairly tranquil arose from the general tendency to union and coalescence under a single ruler which prevailed among most european nations at this period but to which except in this instance italy unfortunately for herself remained a stranger how in the second place it was forced upon the popes by the weakness and insecurity of their temporal position but how in the third it was fostered in an unprecedented degree by the inordinate nepotism of one pope and the martial ambition of another were the story prolonged it would appear how these impure agencies were overruled for good and how when everything else in italy lay prostrate before the foreign conqueror the temporal power preserved at least a simulacrum of independence until the revival of the aspiration for national unity not only superseded the symbol by the reality but swept it away as an obstacle in its own path much of the history of europe in the fifteenth century may be expressed in a single word coalescence a movement as spontaneous and irresistible as those which had in former times lined the mediterranean coasts of asia minor with greek colonies and impelled the northern nations against the decaying roman empire was now agglomerating petty states and feudal lordships into nations a process involving vast social as well as political changes ancient liberties too often disappeared but ancient lawlessness also the tall poppies fell before the sword of the tarquins of the age and the mercantile class which had hitherto only asserted itself under the aegis of the free institutions of independent urban communities became a powerful element in every land everywhere the tendency was towards centralization clans and districts massing into nations semi-independent jurisdictions merging themselves into a single dominant power the necessity and the salutary effect of this evolution are proved by the happier fortune of the nations which conformed to it england france spain the scandinavian north and after a while russia became great powers where the movement towards coherence was but partial as in germany the nation remained feeble and distracted where it proved mainly abortive as in italy the country fell under the sway of the foreigner in one important portion of italy the impulse towards unity was practically effective and produced results extending far beyond the narrow stage to which it was in appearance confined 
the growth of the temporal power of the papacy is as much a phase of the general tendency towards coalescence which we have described as is the beating down of the feudal aristocracy in england or the consolidation of france under louis the eleventh the conduct of the popes in incorporating petty independent or semi-independent principalities with the patrimony of st peter did not materially differ from the line of action adopted by louis or henry towards their overpowerful vassals in all these cases the sovereign was urged on by the spirit and necessities of his age and contended with the influences that made for disintegration as in former times he might have contended with the saracens there was indeed nothing of the spirit of the crusader in him and yet unconsciously he was leading a crusade against a state of things salutary in its day but which at the stage to which the world had progressed would have fettered the development of europe in the case of the popes however one obvious consideration compels us to consider their policy and its consequences from a point of view elsewhere inapplicable they were spiritual as well as secular sovereigns their actions were never confined to a merely political sphere and could not fail to produce the most important effects upon the greatest spiritual institution the world has ever seen an institution which at one time had seemed to pervade the entire social as well as religious fabric of the middle ages and to concentrate every civilizing influence within itself one distinction between the consolidating activity of a merely temporal sovereign and that of a pope though obvious must not be left without notice since it accounts in a measure for the special obloquy which the popes have incurred for obeying the general instinct of their time the monarch was exempt from all suspicion of nepotism the interests of his heir were inseparable from the interests of the state granted that the former were in fact the more influential with him the circumstance was really immaterial he could neither work for himself without working for his successor nor work for his successor without working for himself the pope on the other hand as an elected monarch could not have a legitimate heir while he was by no means precluded from having nephews or still nearer relatives whose interests might come into collision with the interests of the church after his death these relatives would no longer be anything except in so far as he had been able to create a permanent position for them and this rather than the public good was too likely to be the goal of his exertions hence the papal aggrandizement has brought an odium upon the popes of this age unshared by the contemporary secular sovereigns and which in so far as they were actuated by private motives cannot be said to be undeserved sixtus the fourth though the era of papal conquests dates from him and though no pope wrought more persistently or unscrupulously to secure for the papacy a commanding position in italy must rank rather as an accidental promoter than as a deliberate creator of the temporal power since the mainspring of his policy was manifestly the advantage of his nephews this cannot be said of one of the two 
great architects of the temporal power, Julius II. Whether it applies to his precursor is one of the problems of history. Before, however, the question could arise concerning Alexander VI, there was to be an interval of quiet under a feeble pope, who did little for his family and nothing for the church, but who admirably suited the circumstances of his time. Sixtus the Fourth had succeeded well in promoting the interests of his house. Imola and Forli made an excellent establishment for one nephew, Girolamo Riario, another, Giuliano della Rovere was one of the most commanding figures in the College of Cardinals. In every other point of view, the policy of Sixtus had been a failure. He had lowered the moral authority of the papacy without any compensating gain in the secular sphere, and had only bequeathed an example destined to remain for a while inoperative. The election of his successor, Innocent VIII, August 1484, was blamed by contemporaries and pronounced by the notary in Fessura worse even than that of Sixtus, in which bribery had a notorious share. The notary's charges, notwithstanding, are wanting in definiteness, and it seems needless to look beyond the natural inclination of powerful competitors, neither of whom could achieve the papacy for himself, to agree upon some generally acceptable person. It is also generally observed that, as the human frailties which in some shape must beset every pope, are especially manifest at the time of his decease, the choice naturally tends towards someone apparently exempt from these particular failings, and hence towards a person different in some sort from his predecessor. As Calixtus had been unlike Nicholas, and Pius unlike Calixtus, and Paul unlike Pius, and Sixtus unlike Paul, it was but in accordance with precedent that the passionate, imperious, and scrupulous Franciscan should give place to a successor, who might have sat for the portrait of an abbe in Gil Blas. On August twenty ninth, 1484, Cardinal Giovanni Battista Sibo became Pope under the name of Innocent the Eighth. There was probably no more colorless figure in the sacred college. He had owed the cardinalate, which he had enjoyed for eleven years, to his Genoese origin and his episcopate over the city of Savona, Sixtus birthplace. The same circumstances recommended him to the nephew of Sixtus, the able and powerful Cardinal della Rovere, who naturally wished to see one of his uncle's creatures seated on the papal throne. And when the two such potent cardinals as he and the vice-chancellor Borgia had agreed, there was but little need for illegitimate modes of action, beyond the bestowal of legations and palaces, almost indispensable concomitants of a papal election in that age. The arrangements thus made, which are enumerated in the dispatches of the Florentine envoy Vespucci, were mostly regulated directly, or indirectly, by Cardinal della Rovere, who found his account in becoming Papa et Plusquam Papa. The new Pope, indeed, as described by Vespucci, hardly appeared the man to stand by himself. He has little experience in affairs of state, and little learning, but is not wholly ignorant. 
as cardinal he had been distinguished by his affability and was thought to have let down the dignity of the office his morals had not been irreproachable but the attacks of the epigrammatists are gross exaggerations and save for a too public manifestation of his affection for his daughter more criticized by posterity than by contemporaries his conduct as pope appears to have been perfectly decorous innocent's part in the revolution which made the bishop of rome a powerful temporal sovereign was not conspicuous or glorious but it was important it consisted in the demonstration of the absolute necessity of a great extension and fortification of the papal authority if the pope was to enjoy the respect of christendom or was even to continue at rome never was anarchy more prevalent or contempt for justice more universal and the cause was the number of independent jurisdictions from principalities like forli or faenza down to petty barons established at the gates of rome none of them too petty not to be able to set the pope at defiance the general confusion reacted upon the finances and chronic insolvency accredited the accusations in all probability calumnious brought against the pope of conniving at the flight of malefactors who paid him money and granting licenses for sins before their commission the pope himself was conscious of his discreditable position and in a remarkable speech to the florentine ambassador pronounced by anticipation the apology of his vigorous and unscrupulous successors if he said none would aid him against the violence of the king of naples he would betake himself abroad where he would be received with open arms and where he would be assisted to recover his own to the shame and scathe of the disloyal princes and peoples of italy he could not remain in italy if deprived of the dignity befitting a pope but neither was he able if abandoned by the other italian states to resist the king by reason both of the slender military resources of the church and on account of the unruly roman barons who would rejoice to see him in distress he should therefore deem himself entirely justified in seeking refuge abroad should nothing less avail to preserve the dignity of the holy see other popes had done the like and had returned with fame and honour if such was the situation and innocent certainly did not exaggerate it the popes of his day are clearly not to be censured for endeavouring to put it upon a different footing it might indeed be said that they ought to have renounced the temporal power altogether and gone forth scripless into the world in the fashion of the apostles but in their age such proceeding would have been impracticable nor could the thought of it have hardly so much as entered their minds the incurable vice of their position was that the mutation in things temporal absolutely necessary for the safety and well-being of the church could not be brought about by means befitting a christian pastor the best of men could upon the papal throne have effected nothing without violence and treachery innocent's successors were not good men and recourse to means which would have shocked a good man cost them nothing 
but they were indisputably the men for the time. The mission which we have attributed to Innocent of practically demonstrating the need for a strong man in the chair of St. Peter was worked out through a troubled and inglorious pontificate, whose incidents are too remotely connected with the history of the temporal power to justify any fullness of treatment in this place. They turn principally upon his relations with Naples and Florence. Having in 1485 entered upon an unnecessary war with Naples, Innocent soon became intimidated and made peace in 1486. This led to the temporary disgrace of Cardinal della Rovere and the marriage of the Pope's illegitimate son to the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici brought him under the influence of the Florentine ruler. It was the best thing that could have happened for the tranquillity of Italy. Lorenzo was a miniature Augustus, intent indeed on personal ends in the first instance, but with a genuine fibre of patriotism, and not insatiable or even rapacious. Alone among the rulers of Italy, he had the wisdom to discern when acquisition had reached its safe limits, and thenceforth to dedicate his energies to preservation. Hence he was the friend of peace, and the influence he had obtained with the Pope and the King of Naples was devoted to keeping them on amicable terms. In pursuance of this policy, he prevented the Pope from allying himself with Venice, and successfully labored to induce the king to pay to Rome the tribute which he had endeavored to withhold. No wonder that a course so conducive to the material prosperity of Italy earned Lorenzo her thanks and blessings. Yet the unity of Italy, in the last resort, her only safety, could only have sprung from national strife. During the generally uneventful decade of 1480, to 1490, the power of France and Spain was growing fast, and a land partitioned between petty principalities and petty republics was lost so soon as two great ambitious powers agreed to make her their battlefield. For a time, however, the alliance of Lorenzo and Innocent seemed to have brought about a period of halcyon repose. The Pope's financial straits frequently rendered his position embarrassing and undignified, and his attempts to mitigate these, by the multiplication of venal offices, aggravated the corruption of his court. Important events, nevertheless, were as a rule favorable to him. Chance gave the papacy a certain prestige from its relations with the chief ruler of the Mohammedan world. Upon the death of the conqueror of Constantinople, the incurable vice of all oriental monarchies revealed itself in a fratricidal contest for the succession between his sons. Bayezid the Elder gained the throne. His defeated competitor Jem sought refuge with the knights of the St. John of Jerusalem at Rhodes, who naturally detained him as a hostage. The value of the acquisition was proved by the apprehensions of Bayezid, who offered to pay an annual pension so long as his brother should be detained in safe custody. The envy of other Christian states was excited, and every ruler found some reason why the guardianship of Jem should be committed to himself. At length the prize was by common consent entrusted to the Pope, whose claim was really the best, 
and who actually rendered a service to Christendom by keeping Bayezid in restraint, at least so far as regarded the Mediterranean countries. Nor does he appear to have been wanting in any duty towards his captive. So long as Jem remained in the Pope's keeping, Bayezid observed peace at sea, and paid a pension hardly distinguishable from a tribute. And it is hard to understand why Innocent's action in the matter should have been condemned by historians. It was further justified, in the eyes of his contemporaries, by what was then considered a great religious victory, comparable to Augustus' recovery of the standards of Crassus. The session by the sultan of the lands said to have pierced the saviour's side as he hung upon the cross. Some cardinals betrayed a sceptical spirit, remarking that this was not the only relic of the kind, and though received with jubilation at the time, it does not seem to have afterwards figured very conspicuously among the treasures of the Roman sea. A more important success, which reflected luster upon Innocent's pontificate, although he had in no way promoted it, was the fall of Granada on January the 2nd, 1492, the news reached Rome on February the 1st, and was welcomed with festivals and rejoicings, which would have been moderated, if the influence of the event on European politics could then have been comprehended, and the transactions of the next half-century foreseen. When the tidings of the victory arrived, Innocent was already beginning to suffer from the progress of a mortal disease. During the early summer, his health grew desperate. He with difficulty repressed the unseemly contests of Cardinals Borgia and Della Rovere, quarrelling in his presence over the steps to be taken after his decease. Strange stories, probably groundless, were told of boys perishing under the surgeon's hands in the endeavour to save the dying Pope's life by transfusion of blood, while he lay in a lethargy. The scene closed on July 25th, and on the following day the Pope was interred, in the sarcastic words of a contemporary diarist, Lasso singulto modicis lacrimis et ejulato nullo. Little indeed had his life left posterity to applaud or to condemn. His pontificate is only redeemed from absolute insignificance by his docility to the wise counsels of Lorenzo de' Medici, almost the last occasion in history when it has been possible for a pope to lean upon a native Italian prince. Lorenzo had preceded him to the tomb by a month, and from Milan to Naples no ruler remained in Italy, who was capable of following any other policy than one of selfish aggrandizement. The election of a pope, as was remarked above, has frequently resulted in the choice of a successor, strongly contrasted in every respect, with the previous occupant of the chair of St. Peter. It might have been expected that the vacant seat of Innocent would not be filled by another feeble Pope. Yet little attention seems to have been paid at first to the prospects of the two ablest and strongest men in the College of Cardinals. Cardinal della Rovere, indeed, might seem excluded by the unwritten law which almost forbade a cardinal intimately connected with the late pope, to aspire to the papacy on the first vacancy. The cardinal was not indeed a relative of innocence, 
but he had been his minister and was his countryman had he been chosen three genoese popes would have worn the tiara in succession a scandal to the rest of the peninsula moreover innocent's promotions of cardinals had been few and unimportant he had left no posthumous party in the college rodrigo borgia vice-chancellor and senior cardinal seemed on the other hand the man especially pointed out for the emergency his long occupation of the lucrative vice-chancellorship had given him enormous wealth great capacity for affairs was associated in his person with long and intimate experience the scandals of his private life counted for little in that age and although a spaniard by birth he might almost be regarded as a naturalized italian if however a foreign ambassador may be believed haughtiness and the imputation of bad faith had ruined his chances at the last election and it may have been thought that these causes would continue to operate at all events his name finds no place in the first speculations of the observers of the conclave two of its most respectable members the cardinals of naples and of lisbon are apparently the favorites when all on a sudden on august the eleventh rodrigo borgia is elected by the nearly unanimous vote of the sacred college and takes the name of alexander the sixth contemporary diarists and letter writers leave us in no doubt as to the cause of this event cardinal borgia had simply bought up the sacred college the principal agent in his elevation was ascanio sforza a cardinal of the greatest weight for his personal qualities and because of his connection with the reigning house of milan but too young both as a man and a cardinal to aspire as yet to the papacy borgia's election would vacate the lucrative vice-chancellorship and sforza was tempted with the reversion other cardinals divided among themselves the archbishoprics abbacies and other preferments demitted by the new pope but sforza's influence was the determining force his motives were unquestionably rather ambitious than sordid he looked to the vice-chancellorship to pave his path to the papacy and the tale deserves little credence that a man who in every subsequent passage of his life evinced magnanimity and high spirit was further tempted by mule loads of silver there is in truth absolutely no trustworthy evidence as to any money having passed in the shape of coin or bullion and although alexander's election was without question the most notorious of any for the unscrupulous employment of illegitimate influences it is difficult to affirm that it was in principle more simoniacal than most of those which had lately preceded it or were soon to follow if the bias of personal interests vices to invalidate elections decided by it the age of alexander cannot be thought to have often seen a lawful pope if a less austere view is to be taken no broad line of demarcation can well be drawn between the election of alexander and that of julius whatever the flaw in alexander's title he seemed in many respects eminently fit for the office at the mature age of sixty-two dignified in personal appearance and in manner vigorous in constitution 
competently learned, a lawyer and a financier, who had filled the office of vice-chancellor for thirty-six years, versed in diplomacy and well qualified to deal vigorously with turbulent nobles and ferocious bandits, he appeared the aptest possible representative of the temporal power, while his shortcomings on the spiritual side passed almost unnoticed in an age of lax morality, when religion had with most men become a mere form. Some of the far-seeing, indeed, shook their heads over the Pope's illegitimate offspring, and predicted that the strength of his parental affection, and the imperious vehemence of his character, would lead him further and more disastrously than any predecessor on the path of nepotism. To most, however, the experienced statesman and diligent man of business, genial and easy-tempered when not crossed, who knew how to combine magnificence with frugality, and whose deep dissimulation was the more dangerous from the perfect genuineness of the sanguine, jovial temperament beneath which it lay concealed, seemed precisely the Pope, needed for restoring the Church's tarnished dignity. Nor was it long before Alexander justified a portion of the hopes reposed in him by his energy in re-establishing public order and in reinvigorating the administration of justice. It must always be a question how far Alexander can be said to have ascended the papal throne with a definite intention either of aggrandizing his children or of consolidating his authority as a temporal ruler by the subjugation of his petty vassals. That he meant to promote his children's interests in every practicable manner may well be believed, but that he did not contemplate their elevation to sovereign rank seems manifest, from his making the most able and promising of them, his second son Cesare, a prince of the church, by exalting him to the cardinalate at the age of eighteen. The Pope's views for his family, however, had necessarily to be expanded in proportion as his secular policy became one of conquest. And, supposing him to have succeeded to the papal throne without any definite intention of subduing his turbulent barons, the need for such a course was soon impressed upon him. A seemingly quite harmless provision made by Innocent the Eighth, for his natural son, Francesco Kibo, gave the first occasion for disturbance. Kibo, a peaceable and insignificant person, recognizing his inability to defend the lands with which he had been invested, prudently sold them and escaped into private life. But the purchaser was Virginio Orsini, a member of a great baronial house, already far too powerful for the Pope's security, and whose alternate quarrels and reconciliations with the rival family of the Colonna had for centuries been a chief source of disturbance in the patrimony of St. Peter. What was still more serious, the purchase money was believed to be supplied by Ferdinand, King of Naples, whom Orsini had aided in his war with Innocent VIII, and who thus obtained a footing in the Papal States. And the Cardinal del Rovere espoused the cause of Orsini so warmly as to find it prudent to retire, January 1493, to his bishopric of Austria, at the mouth of the Tiber, where he threatened to intercept the food supplies of Rome. 
Alexander naturally allied himself with Milan, Venice, and other states inimical to the king of Naples, and a general war seemed about to break out, when it was composed, July, by the intervening of Spain, which had penetrated the designs of the young French king, new to the throne and a thirst for glory, for the conquest of Naples, and dreaded the opportunity and advantage that would be afforded him if Naples became embroiled with the Pope. A singular change of relations followed. The king of Naples became to all appearance the Pope's most intimate ally. Alexander's third son married a Neapolitan princess. He became estranged from his recent allies in Venice and Milan, and the Milanese Cardinal Sforza, till now apparently omnipotent at the papal court, lost all credit, notwithstanding the marriage of the Pope's daughter Lucretia to the despot of Pesaro, a prince of Sforza's house. Yet within two months things took another aspect. When Alexander ignored Ferdinand's wishes in a nomination of cardinals, which gratified the Sforza and drove the freshly reconciled Cardinal della Rovere into new enmity. The entire series of transactions reveals the levity and faithlessness of the rulers of Italy. Alexander had more excuse than any other potentate, for he alone was menaced with serious danger, and he might have learned, had he needed the lesson, the absolute necessity of fortifying the Pope's temporal authority if even his spiritual authority was to be respected. The signal for the woes of Italy was given by an event which at another time might not have displeased an Italian patriot, the death of Ferdinand or Ferrante, King of Naples, in January 1494. Ferrante was a monarch after the approved pattern of his age, crafty, cruel, perfidious, but intelligent and well-understanding, how to make the most of himself and his kingdom. While he lived, the prestige of his authority and experience, combined with the use of the King of France, may have assisted to delay the execution of French designs upon Naples. Upon his death, they were carried forward with such warmth that, as early as February the Third, Alexander, whose alliance with Naples remained unimpaired, thought it necessary to censure them, in a letter to the French king. A bull assigned by most historians to this date, encouraging Charles to come to Naples in the capacity of a crusader, really belongs to the following year. Whether in obedience to the interests of the hour, or from enlightened policy, Alexander's conduct at this time contrasted favorably with that of other leading men of Italy. Ludovico Sforza, playing with the fire that was to consume him, invited the French king to pass the Alps. The Florentine people favored Charles VIII, although their unpopular ruler Piero de' Medici seemed on the side of Naples. Venice pretended to espouse Sforza's cause, but could in no way be relied upon. Cardinal della Rovere, whose old feud with the Pope had broken out anew, fled to France, where, striving to incense Charles against the Pope, he unchained the tempest against which he was afterwards to contend, when too late. Alexander alone, from whatever motive, acted for a time, as became a patriotic Italian sovereign. Had he possessed any moral authority, 
he might have played a greater part. But papal dignity had been decaying since the days of Dante, and Alexander himself had impaired it still further. When his tone seemed the most confident, he secretly trembled at the weapons which he had himself put into his enemy's hands by the scandals of his life and the simony of his election. Nothing in Charles the Eighth, either in the outer or in the inner man, appeared to betoken the providential instrument as which he stands forth in history. His ugly and diminutive person bore so little resemblance to his parents that many deemed him a supposititious child. His mind was narrow and uninformed. He was equally destitute of political and of military capacity. He knew, however, how to make himself beloved, Sibon, deposes the shrewd and observant Comines. Quilnest point possible the war melior creator. His intentions were good, while unconsciously missled by the noble if perilous passion for glory. He was yet fully convinced that Naples was his of right, for he had inherited the ancient pretensions of the house of Anjou. He went to war rather in the spirit of a knight-errant than in that of a conqueror, much less of a statesman. Neither he nor his counsellors dreamed that he was about to bring the political organization of Italy down like a house of cards, and to launch France on the false path in which she was to persist for centuries, without earning in the end anything but humiliation and defeat. He had already yielded Artois and Franche Comte to Maximilian of Austria for his son, under the terms of the Treaty of Arras, and ceded Rossillon and Sardange to Ferdinand of Aragon, in order to remove every obstacle to his expedition, which he designed to be the first stage of a crusade, headed by himself against the Turks. He had bought the imperial rights of the Paleology, and aimed at reviving the Byzantine Empire in his own person. With this anticipation, he was determined to demand from Alexander the Sixth the custody of the Sultan's brother Jem. Whether he distinctly contemplated the deposition of the Pope is very doubtful. Alexander the Sixth might have secured himself by siding with France. It is to his credit that he remained faithful to his Neapolitan alliance and to the interests of Italy. A joint plan of operations was agreed upon among the Italian states, but the French, though so ill provided with money that Charles was obliged to pawn his jewels, carried everything before them by land and sea. Their land expedition was memorable as the first, in which an army bound on a long march had taken with it a train of artillery. Their maritime superiority gave into their hands Ostia, so lately recovered from Cardinal della Rovere. The Colonna revolted at the gates of Rome, and Neapolitan troops, which ought to have moved northward, had to remain in order to protect the Pope. The terrified head of Christendom sought the aid of the Turk, and employed Charles' design of setting up the captive gem against Bayezid as an instrument for recovering the arrears of the pension paid by the Sultan in consideration of his brother's safe custody. The discovery of the negotiation involved him in obloquy, yet other popes have preferred heretical allies to orthodox adversaries. The genuineness of his instructions to his envoy seems certain. 
that of Bayezid's letters urging Jem's removal by poison is very questionable. At all events, the proposal, if ever made, was not entertained by Alexander. End of section 23